Welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We're so glad you could be with us, uh, and, and we hope that you find this study beneficial. I love this letter, as I do so many of Paul's letters, uh, and we're in chapter 4 today. Uh, we, we, we discussed Paul's uh, role, his task in spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, and, uh, and his prayerfulness as he prayed for, for Christians and for those who would come to know Jesus. And we ended last time with this beautiful verse, which is one of my favorites, uh, in chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And into chapter 4 now, we, uh, we go and we look at verse 1. Therefore... Uh, that's again, there's a, my favorite word that pops up because it means that we get to look back at what we just read and see what that means. He's going to give us a conclusion here. He's going to give us an action. Anytime you see, especially in Paul's letters, a word therefore, what it means is what you just read prior is, uh, is a setup. It's a premise. And the, what comes after the therefore is the action. This is the actionable response to what the Apostle Paul has just said. So therefore, now, now what he's just said is that I'm praying that you will understand these things. I'm praying that you will come to a knowledge of what the, a gift, the grace of God is and the blood of Christ is, and that God can do these amazing things. So here's what I want you to do. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, there is uh, this idea, and if you're familiar with New Testament scripture, there's an idea that somehow Paul and James, who wrote the, the book of James, the epistle of James, are in conflict with one another. And the reason that idea has developed is because Paul writes a lot about salvation by faith and, and, and grace saving us, that it's not the meritorious works of the law. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't make it happen. God makes it happen through Christ by the Spirit. Well, if you read James, then you read him talking about faith without works is dead, and if you don't have work, good works, then you don't really have faith. And people then say, well, James is preaching salvation by works, and Paul is preaching salvation by faith, and they are in conflict. I disagree. Now, I don't hope to solve the whole problem because I'm, I'm not a scholar of that level and there are libraries you could fill with the books written about how to, how to somehow reconcile James and, and Paul. What I will say is this. Paul never says, or excuse me, James never says that we are not saved by faith. All James simply says is that if the faith in Jesus Christ does not change the way you live, then you don't have a faith. And I would agree the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. A faith in Jesus Christ, if it doesn't transform how you live, you don't really have a faith. We are, we're, we're called to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and that he's the Son of God come into the flesh that died for our sins. And if you accept that and you are saved by that faith in Christ, by that grace of God through him, it ought to change the way you behave. It ought to change the way you live, the decisions you make, the words you speak. And so now we come to Paul in Ephesians, and what do you know? Paul is basically echoing James in chapter 4. So again, I see no conflict between the two, and I reject just outright that that's a conflict. If you think that's a conflict, you need to read them again. Because what does Paul say here? He says, 
I uh, implore you to walk in a manner, what? Worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What is that call? Well, you've been called to a faithful life of service. You've been called to righteousness in Christ. Okay, you have been called to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And when you do that, that ought to change the way you live. If you, if you can't look at the cross and Christ hanging there in your place to remove your sin to give you eternal life, if you can't look at that and it transform the way you live, then you're not looking at the right thing. And Paul says that. Paul's echoing and, and agreeing with James here. I implore you to walk, act, live in the manner worthy of the call. Let your physical manifestation, your actions, your behavior reflect the transformation of your heart and of your spirit. How do we do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. How? In love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is an important thing that gets overlooked sometimes in our churches that Paul talks about a lot. Preserving a spirit of unity in a bond of peace. We want to make sure that above all things we are placing an importance on unity, on being together, on being one. That doesn't mean being of the same mind on every single thing. That doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. But we must have fellowship and unity with one another in some things. And that main thing is Jesus Christ crucified. When we accept that, we have a unity with one another in the Spirit and in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body. Now he's going to talk about unity here, okay? So get ready. And Here's what he means by uh, spirit of unity. There is one body. That's the church, right? That Paul refers to the church as a body in many ways. He uses that analogy a lot. So there is one body, one church, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's only one God. There's only one Son. There's only one Spirit. And they formed only one church with one faith, with one baptism. You see, there's so much unity in God. There's so much singularity in God. And yet we manage to divide ourselves and break ourselves apart over a number of things. But when we come back to God and we look at this story, it it's all comes down to one. So how can there be one and we keep trying to divide him up? How do we keep dividing the body and dividing the faith and trying to split God and the spirit and, and baptism? Why do we keep doing that? Well, part of that's human nature. You can look at the flow of history and see that God's people have always had struggles with this. From the very beginning, I mean early on, they don't make it more than a hundred years. They don't make it out of the first century before there start being divisions developed among them. And Paul is urging them here to remain united and to remember there's, there's only one. There's only one God. There's one spirit. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one body. And we're called to one hope. And we're called by God the Father. Verse 7, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive uh, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he, has also, he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. What he's doing is referencing old, older Old Testament scripture. Paul does this a lot because he's a scholar of the Old Testament. He's referencing Old Testament scripture here to point out, and I love this. I love this about Paul, and I know there may be some that disagree with me on, on this point. I believe what Paul is doing, he is not, some would say he's taking Old Testament scripture and he reads Jesus into it. That he, he finds a way to put Jesus into the Old Testament. Now, I understand, and yes, that, that is what's happening, I suppose. But here's my contention, because I don't believe Paul uh, was just willy-nilly taking these verses out of context and trying to shoehorn Jesus into them. Here's what I believe. I believe Jesus was already there. I believe Jesus was always there in the Old Testament, in their scriptures, in their writings. I think there were little clues, little breadcrumbs that were left by the authors inspired by the Spirit and in the stories they told that show us Jesus between the lines of the Old Testament. And Paul simply brings them forth. Uh, with his inspiration, with his, his understanding, and with his uh, wisdom. And so when we see this verse, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And Paul points out, well, if he ascended, the only way that he could have ascended, and we're talking about Jesus, Paul says, the only way he could have ascended is if he had also descended, if he came down. And so Paul says, see, Jesus was there the whole time. He came down to this earth, and what happened when he did? When he came down, um, he says, he who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things, that he might complete the work. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says, God has blessed all of us for different roles sometimes. Some of us are, are, are great preachers and some of us are better teachers and some of us are evangelists and some of us are uh, have, have gifts in other ways of pastoring, shepherding, leading. And some of us uh, have these other gifts and he, gifts of service, but, but, but he gives these gifts to equip us for good work. All of us have a role in this body. So he's saying, you know, you've got to think of it as this collective. We're one body, but we don't all have to be exactly the same. We all have a role to play. We all have a place in this, in this structure, in this church, in this gathered people, the ecclesia. And until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. In other words, we're growing. We have all these different roles, all these different gifts, and we're still growing and fitting them together and learning to use them. And we want to attain the fullness of Christ as a result. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We'll break that down here and unpack that. Paul uses this analogy of the body as the church, right? 
And what is your body? Well, it's many different parts. My fingers do certain things and my arms do certain things and my neck turns, my head and my teeth. I'm all, I mean, I have thousands of parts of my body and all of them have a job, all of them have a task, all of them have a, a function. And they all rely on one another in order to do their function. You know, and if I want to wave to you, in order to do that, my brain has to fire uh, through my nervous system and raise my arm and allow me to articulate my wrist and wave and, and hold my hand as I do that. It, it relies on itself. All the different parts need the other parts. Have you ever watched a small child? Maybe you have children. Have you ever watched them in their development? It's fun to watch, actually. It can be pretty humorous because uh, when they're first born, they pretty much can do nothing on their own. But then they begin to do things like roll over. And then they try scooting, and then they try crawling, and then maybe they're walking and they're really wobbly. Well, they haven't quite grown yet. See, they're developing. They develop things like balance. They develop core strength. They develop the, the muscular structure and skeletal structure to be able to do certain things. And we help them along in that development, but once they get there, they're able to do it. And Paul is making an analogy here about the body as the church and its maturation process. And part of that maturation process is all of those parts learning to work together and develop so that they can all be made stronger and all be made more capable and all be fitted and ready to do the task that they're given to do. And what is that task? That task is to carry on the teaching of Jesus the preaching of the gospel, the spreading of that good news, and to not, uh, an immaturity, setting aside that childishness, immaturity, be able to discern the truth of the gospel from the falsehood of the world, the lies of Satan and the truth of the church. And he says in all of this, we, we speak the truth and we do it in love. We live by the law of love. Love is, is, saturates the New Testament. We live by the law of love because if you have love, and this is why Jesus said it's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God and to love one another. That's one and two. If you have love and if you speak love, then you live differently. You live differently when you love. Verse 17, and again, in this chapter what we're talking about is how we walk, how we live, how our uh, manifestation of the gospel looks like Jesus. If we believe in Jesus and we're called to him and we accept him, then we ought to act like it. We should look like it. So here in verse 17 he says, So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And Gentiles here means pagans, okay? It means, it means those who do not have the law. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance of that is in them because of the hardness of their heart and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness so there's a contrast here he's saying hey you're part of this body you became a part of that body when you joined together with Jesus Christ in baptism when you accepted and expressed your faith in him and so you need to act like it and you don't you need to mature and grow and set aside spiritual childishness and if you do that then you're not going to be like the pagans who reject the gospel you're not going to be like those who in their ignorance of what god has shown them just lives a life of of desire and of debauchery 
and of following after their own wants. You will live differently. And, and so he provides this contrast with these descriptions. And he says in verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So he says, you became a Christian. You put that all aside. You set aside the old you. You became something new. And as you grow in maturity, you leave that there. You leave that behind. You will walk differently. And does that mean that we earn our salvation, that if we score more good points than bad points when we get to heaven, that we get to go in? No, no, we're not talking about salvation by merit. We're not talking about moralism. We're not talking about those things. What we're talking about is being redeemed by the blood of Christ, saved by the grace of God that comes to us through the Son, by the Spirit, that we receive because of that faith, and we live differently as a result. We walk differently. And he says, you need to leave all that uh, aside. Um, that in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside, that's verse 22, uh, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And, verse 23, that you be renewed, renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God that has been created uh, excuse me, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. This is a contrast between lies and truth. The world says, live this way. Live this way and receive these blessings by doing what you want. Humanism. The Lord says, live this way because I've saved you, because I've redeemed you, because I've made you whole. And Paul calls on them to set aside the lies and choose the truth in maturity and in unity. Therefore, verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He's saying don't give in to the human nature that is a foothold for Satan and speak truth. Now what is this lies and truth and what does it have to do with how we live versus what we are spiritually? If I've accepted Jesus Christ and I don't live like it, then I have to ask the question, what is my faith? <laughs> if, you do, if, you, if you look at Christ and see the cross and it does not change how you live, then we have to be cautious and we have to examine why is that. Because it should. So if you call yourself a Christian and you don't live like it, what Paul is basically saying is that's the difference between a truth and a lie. The truth is one who walks according to the call they received, according to the calling and the spirit of Christ. A lie is the one who doesn't live up to what they've been called to. And again, it's not those works that save you, it's those works that are evidence of what's in your heart. And if Christ is in our heart, having redeemed us by his death, then we're living a lie if we don't live according to his example. He talks here about being angry, and he's saying don't let that anger cause you to sin. Anger is just a natural human emotion. We're, we're, okay. we're allowed to have emotion. I mean, Jesus showed emotion. Some of the great heroes of faith showed emotion. We can have emotion. Okay, we're allowed to, to feel things and even to act on those feelings. But he says, don't, don't give Satan an opportunity to turn you from the truth to cause you to live differently by your anger. Don't be weakened by those emotions. Um, 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. Speak love, speak compassion, speak encouragement to those who need it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind. I've got a visitor here. Hey, Jack, you want to say hi? It's my son, Jack. We're going to read this last verse, okay? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Hey, just a minute. This is the essence of the message of Paul. We are to live lives that are consumed with love, saturated with compassion, and live lives that look like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. Hope you join us next time as we continue this study of the book of Ephesians. We're actually getting close to the end. We've got a few more weeks on this, and then we'll move on to some, some new studies. But we're glad you could join us, and we look forward to the next time. All right? Say bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you very much.